Um, hello. Um, there we go. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to another Studies in National and International Development event. Uh, we are thrilled to collaborate with Dr. Rina Kukreja and Migration Speak series for today's event titled The Horn of Africa in Crisis, the War in Tingray and Forced Migration. Um, SNED is hosted by Queen's University, which sits on the traditional territories of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy and Anishinaabeg Nation, and continues to benefit from ongoing colonization, for instance, in the forms of extractions of resources, knowledges, and practices of indigenous peoples, not only in Kataraki, Kingston, but around Turtle Island. Uh, on behalf of co-chairs, myself, Aicha Tomach, and Carolyn Prouse, and our coordinator, Dairon Perez, who are settlers on this land, I would like to reiterate that SNED is committed to boost the voices of scholars, activists, and artists who study, work, and create towards dismantling white supremacy and settler colonialism. Uh, today, I will introduce Dr. Rina Kukreja and she will introduce our speakers. So Dr. Rina Kukreja is a researcher, filmmaker, uh, my colleague, an assistant professor in the Department of Global Development Studies at Queen's University. And again, thank you, Rina, you know, for uh, collaborating with us today. Myself. Um, yeah, I have to unmute myself. Even after so many months, um, getting used to Zoom is still a problem. Um, thanks, Aicha, Carolyn, Dairon, and Snit for, um, for this, um, taking up the suggestion of um, organizing this panel. Um, I just want to introduce the panel theme and then introduce the panelists. Um, just to give you a couple of minutes, as many of you might be aware, in early November 2020, or civil war broke out in Ethiopia that quickly turned into a humanitarian crisis. The raging conflict involving neighboring Eritrea risks destabilizing the whole Horn of Africa region. It jeopardized also the safety of more than 90,000 Eritrean refugees in the Tigray region of Ethiopia and displaced hundreds of thousands of Tigrayans from their homes, 60,000 of whom crossed the border into Sudan as refugees. As someone who follows news about displacement and conflicts and, you know, conflict-induced displacement, and in particularly someone who's been following the history of displacements and conflict in the Horn of Africa, um, I was happy to see peace come to the region with the Prime Minister Abiy, Dr. Abiy Ahmed, winning the Nobel Peace Prize for resolving the 20-year conflict with Eritrea. But a year later, in November 2020, he then sends in his Ethiopian troops to its Tigray region. This resulted in a warfare against its own citizens. How does that make any sense is what, you know, was the basic premise that led me to wonder um, more. Very much like myself, I'm sure you're also desirous of understanding the intersections of conflicts and migration in the Horn of Africa with special attention to the root cause, causes of the ongoing conflict and the displacements of civilians, both Tigrayans and Eritrean refugees that preceded it and now follow it. And this selfish need of mine in large part to learn more has led me to reach out to people whose voices are trusted and respected for their ability to speak the truth as is. So now I take great pleasure in introducing, I don't know whether um, Siddale um, has come on or not. Um, let me just check. Um, in the she is, she, 
Rina, if I can jump in. She is coming, but she's having technical problems with the video. But she was just telling me that she will try to fix it, but she's joining us by audio. Okay, thank you. So I will introduce Sedale. Um, um, and since Avet, you began, um, let me introduce um, Dr. Avet Weldemichael, um, who is a professor and Queen's National Scholar here at Queen's University in the Department of History. He's also a member of the Royal Society of Canada College of New Scholars. He's also an expert of the Horn of Africa on and has been closely following the ongoing web of conflicts in the region. He has also published extensively on the conflict there. Uh, Sedale Lama, um, who we can hear but not see at the moment, is the founding editor and editor-in-chief of Ada Standard, a monthly news magazine published in English from Ethiopia. Bravo, Sedale, we can see you. <laughs> You'll have to unmute yourself. She founded this journal in 2011. This publication reports critically on domestic and foreign socio-political current affairs impacting Ethiopia. Um, Siddale Lama has given many talks, including testifying in front of US Foreign Relations Subcommittee on Africa. Welcome to the both of you. And thank you for um, taking up my email, which said, hey, do you want to explain more about this? So, um, let me just begin by asking a very broad question. What, um, and so um, what precipitated this conflict and the crisis in the region? Can you provide some historical and contemporary context in broad strokes? Um, Sedale, maybe um, I can ask you to wade in first with this question and then turn it over to Avet. Thank you very much, Rena, and I'm glad I made it. I was struggling with a video feed. I don't know what happened to it, but I was using it last night. Um, anyhow, thanks for the question as well. This is a, this is a big question, but I, I, I would try to you know, compact it in a way that is so palatable for the rest of the panelists. Uh, what precipitated this conflict today is first and foremost, and essentially, this is very important to keep in mind, is a failure to have a political settlement um, in the country. As the country came out of the um, centralized authoritarian system that was dominated by uh, the TPLF, which is the which was the governing party of the Tigray regional state in the past. And the Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed set on undoing the political order that kept the country for 27 years under the iron fist of the TPLF's control. Um, fallouts were very imminent. We, we, we could see that there, there was a fallout coming, uh, coming to the front. And what was needed was to have that political solution because this fallout has its deep-rooted um, genesis in the differences of uh, ideological differences and political differences between uh, the prime minister and the leaders of the TPLF. So it, the genesis of this conflict today is a political failure to, to reach at a political settlement as the country emerged out of uh, the system that held it together for 27 years. And the prime minister wanted to fashion his own political program in the country under his own leadership. And the TPLF refused to be a part of that political um, uh, system that the prime minister was installing. So it is failure to compromise, failure to reach at um, an agreement as to where the country was headed at after Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed. 
Thank you, Sadale. And my apologies. I also wanted to mention that the third panelist, Mehran Estefanos, um, who is um, the co-founder of the International Commission on Eritrean Refugees, she was going to be a part of this panel, but her son got um, hospitalized and so she's not present here. Her voice um, is going to be sorely missed. So I totally forgotten to mention that. My apologies. Um, thanks, Sadale, for um, just setting it up about the political settlement um, not being enough. Um, Avit, over to you. Thank you. Thank you, Rina, for um, organizing this uh, and uh, SNID. Um, very delighted to join Sadale. Unfortunate um, that we couldn't have Meron, two very, very uh, important voices um, from the Horn of Africa. Um, before I answer your question, I wanted to emphasize the significance of this topic the level of tragedy unfolding and the potential of regional instability that this conflict um, uh, brings uh, in light of which one uh, seminar, one panel discussion is uh, very, very inadequate. And so I encourage the members of the community and we have a growing Horn of Africa community, a much bigger Horn of Africa interest also, not just at Queens, but all generally in Southern Ontario and across Canada. And so I would like to uh, encourage uh, members of our community to more aggressively organize similar uh, panels and teachings because no matter how much uh, we pour our knowledge out today, it's not going to be adequate. Now, back to your question, Rina, um, let me take you even further to give the context that to, to which uh, Tzadale uh, nicely uh, captured. Um, after 17 years of uh, armed struggle, the Tigray People's Liberation Front, TPLF, um, and its allies defeated the military government in Ethiopia in 1991 and installed itself atop of a four-party coalition called EPRDF as the government of Ethiopia. Between 1991 to 2018, TPLF remained a dominant partner in this four-party coalition called EPRDF that run Ethiopia. And this 27 years of rule uh, under TPLF domination uh, was a mixed bag, was a very typical mixed bag. On the one hand, um, Ethiopia made tremendous progress on many uh, sectors. Um, on the other hand, it was a brutal repressive system. On the one hand, it empowered previously disempowered communities. It enriched previously impoverished communities, um, made impoverished, actually, I shouldn't say impoverished, made impoverished communities. Um, on the other hand, it pr brutally put down any sorts of resistance to its ways. It's a, 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 a and, and the kind of, of violence that um, it unleashed against its opponents inside Ethiopia was also um, um, reflected in its relations uh, across the region um, on the one hand, but on the other hand, it was one of the biggest troop contributing country to international peacekeeping operations. So it's a totally mixed bag in all respects. Um, and so, as a result of this, the level of empowerment and wealth was rising at the same time that grievances against the state was rising. 
And the grievances overflowed between 19, uh, 2015 and 2017, which led to the then prime minister to step down and prime minister Abiy to come to power. And from then on, what Tzadali uh, Lama put, uh, I, there's nothing I could add. She captured it uh, beautifully. The lack of compromise, the most important element of, of the crisis that's going on right now. Yeah, and that's interesting. You ended on the note that um, I had the next question written out um, for my own interest is, what were the circumstances that led to the rise of power of Dr. Abi Ahmed? And I think you answered some of it um, in terms of the kind of grievances. But, um, you know, I also want you both of you to amplify how do we make sense that one year you know he's hailed as a peace prize winner and the next year he's leading his own people um, and his forces against his own people and committing acts of crime against um, people who are Ethiopians even though you can say yes they are Tigrayans. So um, I just want to understand that about Ethiopia and Dr. Abiy Ahmed. Um, Sadale, can you just elaborate on where Awet ended um, and then Awet can take up from there because I feel you both are doing a great tag team. You're muted. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, that, that's quite a stark picture, isn't it? Uh, war on his own people just a year um, and a half down the line and uh, it's 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 tragic in every sense of it and unfortunate as well um, but it was not unforeseen um, for us who have been closely following the dynamics the political dynamics that he adopted after he came to power you know professor Awood uh, nicely put it what led to the demise of the previous system the EPRDF which was uh, heavily controlled by the TPLF so after the prime minister came to power the trajectory the political trajectory that he followed after that uh, would wouldn't be so difficult for us to see um, that he would end up in something so fatal like 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 he did today with the TPLF. When the world was showering him with all the adjectives of a reformer, a young, uh, you know, an ambitious, uh, pragmatic, and you name it, he had it. Uh, we were cringing, honestly speaking, because because exactly the roadmap that he was putting forth as a political settlement in the country was a roadmap that would really plunge the country into chaos. And we have been very vocal about it uh, from the very beginning. Uh, this Nobel Peace Prize that he won, he won it primarily for the rapprochement that he set in motion with the Eritrea's president, dictator Isaiah Safworki. Uh, we, we were voicing our, our concern from the very beginning for two reasons. Number one, what he glamorized as a peace accord with Eritrea at that time was, was not something the Ethiopian parliament has approved of. The EPRDF government that collapsed in his advent um, actually put in motion to put the peace process back on track, which was started 20 years ago and aborted 
because the TPLF was intransigent in accepting the Border uh, Commission's ruling of handing over the contested land, Rabadime, to Eritrea. So TPLF was playing all cards available in its, uh, in its disposal to really drag its feet in finalizing the peace process with Eritrea the border demarcation with Eritrea. And that has created animosity between the TPLF and the, the Eritrea's uh, president, Isaiah Saforiki. So when finally the EPRDF wanted to reform and become a better political organization than it was, because it was collapsing under the pressure of the streets, the, the protesters on the street, one of the, 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 the 12 measures that they wanted to take was to set in motion the peace process that was aborted 20 years ago in a formalized and institutionalized way. Now, Abiy Ahmed came to the power on the promises of implementing this reform agenda that were set in motion by the, by the EPRDF as a political party. Instead, what he did was set in motion a personal relationship with Isaiah Saforki, bypassing every institutional procedures that he needed to follow. Uh, in fact, not even informing the Ethiopia's foreign ministry, let alone the parliament, you know, the, the lawmakers on, on what kind of institutionalized or rapprochement that he was following. It was simply a personal uh, relationship that he cultivated with Isaiah Saforki because they have a common enemy. The TPLF happened to be the common enemy. Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed unseated the TPLF. Soon after that, he went on waging a verbal war against them, which was very toxic, which also you know, led to the deterioration of any political settlement between the two. TPLF left the center went and you know camped itself in Magali and they were also you know launching this verbal assault against the prime minister that has really toxified the political atmosphere between the two of them. After that the prime minister was bypassing the TPLF itself as a neighboring state to Eritrea. He was not making them become a part of that peace pact if it was a peace pact he was making with Isaiah Saforki. Instead, he really bypassed every institution and took it into a personal level and took the peace process to Dubai, um, the UAE and, and Saudi Arabia. The Ethiopian people, the Eritrean people don't know anything about the agreements the two men have signed in this peace. You know, there were five point agreements that they have signed, but they were just points that you could stare at 24 seven and find nothing in them. What is uh, what kind of institutional mechanism were there to be followed for the two countries to demarcate the contested border areas, to demilitarize the border areas. Nothing of a sort like that is known to the Ethiopian parliament, to the Eritrean government. There is no parliament there anyway and even to the Ethiopian foreign ministry. So it really hinged on the, on the two men who were just exchanging all these fluffy languages and you know, visits and flowers and um, uh, parades and all these things. So the, the essential thing that was going wrong with that peace process was that it was never known to the Ethiopian people, to the institutions. The peace, the, the Nobel Peace Awarding Committee went ahead regardless of our own you know, critics and, and reservations and screams and shouts, 
they went ahead because they wanted to see this peace process to be like emblematic of what is to happen maybe between North Korea and South Korea. You know, they, they wanted, they projected their own image of this peace process because in the beginning, you know, the reunification of uh, families, which was really a fantastic thing to see, the restoration of phone calls and everything was really something to look up to. So the Nobel Peace Prize Committee awarded the prime minister. And bear in mind, this was not shared with um, Isaiah uh, Saforki. It was singularly given to um, Abi Ahmed, you know, although the peace agreement involved the two men. So that's where you see the problem from the very beginning. And they wanted to see what they wanted to see. They gave it to him. And that instead emboldened him to continue the path he started initially, which is completely undermining the role, the key role of not only TPLF, but the Tigrayan people. The people to people, you know, peace relations were also aborted. You know, once the prime minister has won the peace, uh, the, the Nobel, they went on closing back the borders that they opened. All the five entry points were closed down. Mobility was restrained again. Family reunification was aborted completely. Nobody could see that beyond, you know, beyond the euphoria, beyond the happiness of the Nobel Peace Prize. And but deep inside, you know, TPLF was really getting angry. They were, you know, throwing out all these uh, critical remarks about the relationship between the two, and they cornered it. The, the narrative that they, uh, you know, came out with it is that this was a security pact to corner the TPLF, to attack Tigray. And, you know, it's an attempt of surrounding Tigray with all this um, anim animosity and all these things. So after that, there was no turning point. And that is the problem that the world needs to stand, pause and see how we went from a peace to a war in less than two years period of time. Oh, wow. Thank you, Sadale, for setting this up so well. Um, in one of your earlier interviews, you talked about, you know, the infatuation of the West. It has ended and you summed it up really well over here in terms of um, showing how the peace accord itself was based on a very shaky foundation based on the two, the relationship between these two men, one of whom is an is a dictator um, and, and, and how this has created the problems later on um, uh, in terms of Tigray. Um, really, this really clears a lot of things in my head. Um, Avit, would you like to wait in and add some more um, to what Sadale has, um, has explained? I, next time you invite Sadale, I want to be in the audience because I want to hear her talk more. <laughs> But in the interest of our audience, let me go into a little more detail so that uh, detail that Sadale knows, but just the audience uh, uh, gets uh, a good sense of. So this repressive TPLF rule was challenged more than anyone else by the people of Tigray. So in 2014 and 2015, there was a lot of pressure on the TPLF from the Tigrayan public, except that that pressure was not publicly displayed like it was displayed in the Amhara Kilil or, or in the Oromia Kilil, the Fano and the Kero. These are local uh, names of the youth in, in the Amhara and Oromia uh, regions of Ethiopia that rose up, uh, went into the streets, paralyzed government, uh, regional governments and enforced change. Integrate the mode was through public meetings and TPLF to its credit, and I'm, I've always been a critic of the TPLF, um, but 
to its credit, it modified its ways. It's, it started to change and initiated this within the four-party coalition, initiated this process of, okay, we need to make peace with Eritrea. Because being the border region of Ethiopia bordering almost entirely with the uh, exception in the east uh, uh, with the Afar uh, Kulil, Afar region, uh, Tigray was the main uh, area where the fighting between Eritrea and Ethiopia happened. In other words, it, it was uh, uh, beneficial for the Tigrayan people to have a normalized relationship with their Eritrean neighbors, brothers and families and sisters, right? And so the TPLF saw this and initiated an internal reform of policy within EPRDF. And in 2015, the EPRDF quietly decided to normalize relations with Eritrea. But the Eritrean president had held deep grudges and he knew he could not trust the TPLF and he wanted to get rid of the TPLF. And so he demanded things in order, the, because the decision was communicated to him. And in order for him to accept it, he asks the then prime minister, weak prime minister, I must say, Haile Mariam Dasalin, to make compromises that he knew the TPLF would not allow, at which point that door was shut. So when Abiy came to power, he had an already concluded decision that he needed to implement, which he made his own, but in fact, it was not his own. It was a, a, an EPRDF level decision pushed upwards by the pressure from the ground in Tigray, by the people of Tigray. The irony is that right now, the people of Tigray are carrying the brunt of this war in all forms of egregious uh, uh, violations of rights. And so this agreement, Isaias put the same test. He wanted to see if this new young prime minister um, was sufficiently removed from the TPLF. And so Abiy had to prove to the Eritrean dictator that he, in fact, is free from the TPLF pressure. And once he saw enough signs that Abiy is, has, has successfully removed himself from the TPLF, President Isaias makes a speech accepting Addis Ababa's overture for peace. And in that speech, which was a groundbreaking speech. He characterizes the TPLF, which is a, a part of the government that he is making peace with. Look at the contradictions here. He characterizes them as vultures, that their game was over and there is no more holding the whole region hostage, right? In the same breath. The interesting part is that Abi neither uh, 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 censured that, nor did he do anything um, to put mechanisms of containing any fallout of that. And so Isaias became the driver of the whole project because Abi so heavily depended on him. Not so much because Abi is inherently weak, but his obsession on the TPLF, which was shared by Isaias, made him Isaias' uh, second man, basically. Hmm. And then the peace became between Addis Ababa and Asmara, totally circumventing the region and the people 
directly affected by the brutal war that cost 100,000 lives and held Eritrea's uh, entire life hostage for two decades and devastated the part of Ethiopia that should have been part of this peace process. So it was not really peace that was agreed upon. It was a political pact. And in this, the TPLF is right. However critical I am of the TPLF, they were right. This was not a peace pact. It was a political slash security pact, a marriage of convenience targeting the TPLF. And as soon as that happened, the TPLF did what it did best, drag its feet, uh, uh, um, make the peace practically meaningless on the ground. Thank you. Right, okay. Um, wow, um, thank you for setting that up and also for clarifying that this wasn't a peace accord, but it was a security pact, right? Um, something that um, from its very genesis was laying the basis for future conflicts and rancor. The very fact that um, the, the dictator there is calling the TPLF as vultures and Abby not censoring them the way it is marginalized is, is just um, very clear um, how uh, this was this was exclusionary in many ways. Um, so there are two questions here which are related um, to the Eritrean refugees, but I'm going to park it for a bit right now. Um, and I want to talk about, um, uh, you know, there's some really worrisome reports about human rights violation in Tigray, about massacres, rapes, and actual ethnic cleansing. Um, you know, um, Amnesty International, MSF just yesterday also talked about it, Human Rights Watch. Um, there's a lot of media outlets, um, you know, that's happening. As a journalist, um, Sedale, I know you have an ear to the ground. I want to hear from you what is happening there. Can you tell us more? Um, <clears throat> and also, um, I also want to hear about the information blackout that is occurring in that region, which is not allowing people to go in journalists or media. Um, and so there's a trickling in of information. And I know um, Addis uh, standards journalists have also been threatened. So can you speak a bit more about the kind of egregious human rights violations that are happening there? Sorry, I keep forgetting to unmute myself. Um, what's happening is purely, purely, purely tragic. It's heartbreaking um, because it is no longer now, initially the government said this was a law enforcement uh, mission to contain a rogue element, the TPLF, which uh, the government said has attacked the Northern Command and the TPLF itself has admitted they have taken Alevate preemptive, according to the TPLF, and uh, preceding things would, would point at that preemptive uh, attack because prior to the war uh, breaking out on the first, uh, early morning of the 1st of November, uh, there were troop mobilizations um, uh, from all over towards the direction of Tigray regional state uh, for that matter. In fact, on the 2nd of November, the European Union uh, published a warning uh, calling for restraint 
in troop mobilization, both from Eritrea and the Ethiopian side, because it was just this massive mobilization of troops. On the 3rd of November, the TPA left and attacked the um, Northern Command post that's stationed not far from Mekale, the capital city of uh, Tigray. So this war, the government said, was to secure the sovereignty of the country, uh, to restore law and order because there is that heavily armed rogue element in that regional state. Bear in mind that uh, the Northern Command is home to almost 80% of the National Defense Forces weaponry, hardware weaponry, and also the human resource in terms of military. And so uh, the government moved you know, to restore um, law and order. Um, so Initially, we really didn't know because the first thing that happened was the communication blackdown, which the government blamed it. Later on, that the, the TPLF itself has cut the communication lines and everything. But even if the, the TPLF you know, has cut the communication lines, the permission from the federal government was not there for the media to venture into that area. So we really didn't know. The little bit that was trickling out was coming out from um, humanitarian organizations. The ICRC, the Ethiopian Red Cross Society was able to penetrate the area early days in the early first weeks of the conflict, uh, despite a lot of problems of you know, being blocked on the way. And uh, the UN uh, humanitarian, uh, um, you know, the UN OCHA, which organizes uh, uh, multiple humanitarian under uh, humanitarian organizations under the UN, was also had staff there, and also information was coming from several embassies who had their citizens and nationals uh, stationed in the Tigray regional state. So we were getting bits and pieces of information. The first, uh, almost the first, good two months, uh, there was no formal report coming out other than the government, which would select its own media crew to travel there with the army to tell the Ethiopian people so-and-so cities, so-and-so towns were liberated from the TPLA, from the hands of TPLA. TPLA did that. And you know all the narrative that was coming about the war, about what was happening, was coming from the government media. But we were getting the flip side of that because we you know, stayed tuned into um, these uh, reports coming from these parties that are not a part of the conflict. Going by that, even early reports, we knew that this was there was something dark that was happening there. Something really unimaginable was taking place. The early report of atrocity came from Mykadra, which is in the western part of um, Tigray regional state. You know, the, 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 the Mykadra massacre, uh, I think uh, uh, the number is fluctuating. You know, the government, the attorney general itself saying numbers were inflated, but initially numbers were said to be around a thousand. The attorney general said the numbers were inflated after that. And now they want to put that number to 1,300 of people killed. The government maintains that this atrocity solely happened against the Amhara residents of the Maikadra town, uh, but refugees that are fleeing to the across the border to Sudan, um, they are 100% of them, almost 100% of them Tigrayans, tell different story. So how we balanced the, the information at that time was, Yes, there is the Maikadra massacre that happened. Yes, there is also the different side of that story. The, the government wanted to magnify 
the, the, the massacre there as if it was solely committed against the Amhara um, ethnic groups in living in that in that city and surrounding areas. Uh, but as I said, the international media who could afford to send their journalists to the refugee camps in Sudan would come with a different story of uh, uh, victim uh, of, of the grand victims of the same massacre. So that the early days of the massacre was the Maikadra massacre. And I'm glad to say today that there is an agreement between the Ethiopian Human Rights Commission and the UN Human Rights Commission for a joint investigation into all atrocities that are committed. But going by the last one month's coverage, this is a, a couple of weeks actually, not one month, after the Ethiopian government arm twisted in allowing international media to go there. Um, uh, local media, as far as I know, are not still allowed to travel there. We have tried a couple of times, but we were not successful. But international media was allowed to be there. The stories that are coming out are just absolutely horrifying. The gang rape, the weaponized rape, which amounts to a genocide. These are all there, documented now. And of course, they were trickling through the activists, but you know, we, it's so difficult and risky to take accounts coming from the Tigran activists themselves. You know, getting it weeks or days after the you know the, the, the said massacre happened. The other turning point is the report by the Ethiopian Human Rights Commission that came out the day before yesterday, um, confirming what Amnesty International and the Human Rights Watch said a few weeks ago about a massacre that took place in Aksum, uh, which involved Eritrean forces. Uh, and the Ethiopian Human Rights Commission, which is a government-sanctioned human rights commission, bear that in mind, confirmed that report that Eritreans have killed, the numbers are still fluctuation. You know, uh, Amnesty said more than 200, uh, Human Rights Watch said, you know, uh, around that, the same number, but the Ethiopian Human Rights Commission preliminary report said uh, a little over more than 100 people were massacred in the 28th and 29th of November, and that involved Eritrean forces there. We have also seen reports of massive destruction of infrastructure. The most heartbreaking is the report from the MSF. And we take those reports very seriously because as non-conflict parties to this conflict, MSF is not known manipulating reports of conflict. These are institutions that get very rare access to areas even the government sees uh, you know, impossible to penetrate. So the MSF report about the destruction of health facilities in the regional state tells you that this is beyond and above restoring law and order. And we are talking about dozens of health facilities currently occupied by armed groups. Uh, the, the reports suggest the Ethiopian army and the Eritrean army as occupying health facilities as a launching pad to continue the, the war. So the war has continued. It's not over. Despite Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed saying on the 28th of November, the mission was complete. Operation was over. It was completed with a victory to the National Army. The war, in fact, has raged on. At the same time he was declaring this, the Aksum massacre was happening, going by the accounts of the Ethiopian Human Rights Commission today. That tells you the magnitude, the depths and breadths of this war. And it's not over. And because, because the parties that are involved in it didn't say 
we stop fighting. They're still fighting, be it the TPLF, be it the Eritrean forces are in mass still deployed inside the Ethiopian territory. And it's admitted by the prime minister, finally, that Eritrean forces are inside the Ethiopian territory. So the war will go on and it's continuing. So is the atrocities. And this is the tip of the iceberg in my, in, in my, in my, in my, in my reading so far. Thank you so much, Sadale. And it's a very sad travesty that this is happening. Um, <clears throat> coming from India, where we have um, the history of the Indian state launching attack on its very own people, it has one of the longest um, running um, feud, or should I say, um, state orchestrated killings of people, say from the Nagas or the Mizos, or as well um, the, the, the poor uh, indigenous communities that have risen up against state-led dispossession. So this is, um, it, it bears echoes. And often um, in India, we try to deflect um, state-sponsored violence against one community by trying to point out, hey, but what about the other community? Why aren't you focusing on that? What I want to emphasize is that any um, human rights violation of any person who whatever the ethnicity or race has to be denounced and we can't pit one community against the other because um, power imbalances keep on happening but human rights violation whoever it takes out its form, um, especially by the state, should be um, very publicly denounced. Um, now that you know, I, I, I just wanted to, um, I'm very mindful of time, it's 1.43. Um, Avit, I just wanted to ask you this question, going back to Eritrea, um, Eritrea's dictator um, and Eritrea dirtying its hands very openly in the war, which Abiy Ahmed just acknowledged a couple of days ago. Um, you know, what many people don't know is that um, Tigray region hosts around 90,000 refugees, right? Right? So I want to know, um, how is the conflict affecting the Eritrean refugees? What's happening to them? Because um, I, I assume they are caught in the middle. Yes, Rina. Um, so the, there, is, there is a very significant push factor to the exodus of uh, Eritreans out of their country to begin with. Um, this especially after 2001, uh, when the peace uh, was signed between Eritrea and Ethiopia. 1998 to 2000, the two countries fought, fought a very brutal war. Um, and afterwards, the Eritrean government neither demobilized the uh, national service uh, men and women, um, nor did it give any credible hint at when um, it would restore basic normalcy to the Eritrean society. So with the entirety of Eritrea's existence, social, cultural, political, economic, held hostage, and the regime growing stronger and stronger, more and more repressive, Eritreans, especially the young, but eventually elderly uh, and unaccompanied minors started to flee their own country in droves. Um, many of them, Obviously, Eritrea is uh, surrounded by Ethiopia or neighbors, Ethiopia and uh, Sudan as big neighbors. And um, many Eritreans fled into Ethiopia. And TPLF as the government then 
uh, did not accept Eritreans just out of humanitarian consideration. That was part of its political calculation to weaken Eritrea too. But to the individual refugees who crossed the border um, and, and found safety in, in, uh, in Ethiopia, that was a welcome reprieve. And sure enough, at this point, there are estimated some close to 200,000, 190 or something Eritreans across Ethiopia who fled their own country. Um, about 94,000 of them were in the Tigray region alone when this war broke out. And uh, just under 50,000 of them were in various camps. The rest were in towns and uh, uh, urban areas. And when the war broke out, um, there were at least two camps that were um, either directly attacked or were caught in, 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 in crossfire. Um, whatever the case may be, what we know so far is in the process, two of these camps were completely destroyed. And, and here I'm very cautious and also I will comment on uh, Tzadalis' uh, earlier points because there is this overwhelming tendency to deny these egregious human rights violations are taking place. Um, the one way to verify this is to allow independent impartial investigation. Um, if you do not have anything to hide, then you have nothing to fear. You should allow this. The moment you prevaricate on that is enough of an indi indication that you have something to hide. And so, um, the UNHCR um, uh, director, Filippo Grandi, um, said that 20,000 Eritrean refugees who are under international protection are unaccounted for as a result of these camps being dismantled, refugees being dispersed, many of them being forcibly returned back to Eritrea. <laughs> Um, reports from the ground also give some grisly details about reprisal attacks by local militia against the Eritreans. There are also unbelievably horrifying uh, uh, stories that some of these refugees were either coerced or willingly took up arms and were involved in some kind of the attacks that were happening against Tigrayan civilians. So the, the, the stories that we're getting from the ground is very messy. But the big picture answer to your question is that Eritrean refugees are caught, are held, uh, are caught in, in this crossfire. Uh, many of them are directly uh, attacked or are becoming direct victims. Um, if you can allow me to just comment on uh, or add to, to uh, what Adalis said earlier, it's very important here to bear in mind that Tigray is not the only conflict that's going on in Ethiopia. It is the biggest and has a regional dimensions to it because Eritrea, a, a sovereign country is involved. And earlier on, there are credible reports that the UAE the United Arab Emirates was involved through the deployments of its drones that were based in Eritrea. And so the regional ramifications is great and the scale of the fighting itself is also major. But there are also lower intensity conflicts in many parts of Ethiopia, 
which intensified as a result of Ethiopian government's redeployment of its troops from various parts of hotspots across the country to Tigray. And on the Eritrean side, the mobilization was very open and it did not happen uh, in October. It was in the making for several uh, months before that. And the TPLF was not blind to this. Neither was it uh, 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 an innocent bystander. So the, there, there is this tendency to play innocent or to feel like, oh, we were dragged into this by that rocket launching. No, there are too much um, factors and too much blame to go around uh, um, for all of the war insiders to be responsible for. If I can comment on the ethnic cleansing and human rights violations uh, against civilians, please it's stop me. Minute, if I'm talking it's one fifty, and I want to open the floor for um, discussion. So yeah, ethnic cleansing um, has many, uh, uh, and, and genocide have many manifestations. So in a rural society, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a traditional society uh, where rape is um, um, a taboo topic and rape victims are, um, I'm losing the word, um, are their, 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 their image and their reputation there as well as that of their family is said to be uh, degraded. And so uh, those gender-based violence uh, goes hidden. Um, more than 500 of them voluntarily reported themselves as having been sexually violated by one or another of the warring sides. And you, that cannot be a random act. This is a systematic effort to, to not only physically assault and humiliate these individual women, it is an attack on the entirety of the society. That's one manifestation of it that has to be independently investigated. The second aspect of it is there is territorial dispute between the Tigray region and the Amhara, the neighboring Amhara region in Western Tigray and uh, Southern Tigray. Amhara militia, are part and parcel of the federal government's war effort against the TPLF. But the Amhara militia have also a bone in the, in the, in the affair, in a sense that they, have a, they, they lay claim to a large swaths of territory that they argue the TPLF had forcefully taken away from them. So they are trying to reclaim those territories. And in the process of doing that, reports from the ground indicate that they are not only um, uh, uh, forcefully removing ethnic Tigrayans, but also killing them in large number. And such kind of forceful identity-based attacks are also happening elsewhere in the country. But as you correctly pointed out, just because they are happening against Amhara, say in Benishangul or in Oromia, it does not justify Amhara militia, um, ethnically cleansing territories in uh, uh, one or another part of the country, regardless of the legitimacy of their claim. 
Um, thank you, Avet. And honestly, I had another question, but I'm going to park it over here. Um, and it's 1.53, and I wanted to open up the floor for discussion. And I know I haven't even gone on to the larger topic of forced displacement in the Horn of Africa and what it means for the peace and stability of the region, given that a number of Tigrayans have fled to the neighboring Sudan, which already is overburdened, right? So um, maybe that's a discussion for another panel later on. I'm very mindful of the time. So I'm just going to go over some of the questions and please feel free um, to wade in. Uh, okay, right. Um, I haven't been following the questions. Um, uh, right, so there's a question about diversity. Um, uh, so um, uh, Menelik asks a question, says that, you know, the panel needs diversity. I wonder if we can define the crisis as civil war and it is offensive for Ethiopians to define it as such. Avatan Sedale, I say to you, our human rights concerns should not be selective since the most important crisis as much as the Tigray is the ethnic cleansing of Amhara in Ethiopia or Horn or Africa today. Um, I feel Avet, you did touch upon it, but um, let me just wait and see what else is there. Um, yeah. And then there's another question by Yifsel. I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing. Um, Avet and Sedale, you can see these. Um, it's open to either one of you to answer. There's no war between Ethiopia and Eritrea, but the peace enforcement on TPLF. Um, so this panelist should deny this reality. Um, are you asking that we should deny that war is happening? Um, Anyway, going back to um, whether we should define this crisis as civil war. I think that's a simple one. Should we call it a civil war or not? It is a civil war, Rena. There is no other term for it. Um, the, simple, the simple fact that we have forces that are mobilized from one part of the country to go into the other part of the country to to participate in this war makes it a civil war, um, but also a dangerous one for that matter, because uh, I think it's beyond, beyond the point of denial now that it involves as well a neighboring country um, and, and uh, Eritrean forces and have yet to be confirmed, but also uh, drone attacks that TPLF was um, saying time and again that involved the UAE before it evacuated its uh, military base from um, from Asmara from 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 uh, Eritrea near Asap, I, I assume. Coming back to the question, the simple answer is: It is a civil war. Brothers are killing brothers. Although it involves Eritrea from the neighboring country, UAE some unconfirmed reports about Somali uh, from, from Somalia, not the Ethiopian Somali. It is a civil war. It pitted, you know, the Ethiopian Defense Force is, was going under a, a, a massive reform in terms of it is a proportion of the ethnic composition for the last two and a half years after Abiy Ahmed came. One of the things that he embarked on was to reform the, the National Defense Forces because it was disproportionately representative of the Tigrayans inside of it. Um, and he, he tried to mix the, the defense force to reflect the country's uh, multiple ethnic groups in, in that country. 
He changed the leadership from a TPLF control to an Oromo controlled now, which is another despicable act. Uh, nothing much of happened in terms of leadership, but the rank and file composition of the national army has been really thoroughly um, um, reformed to reflect the, the various parts of ethnic groups in the country. It is the national defense force that is mobilized in mass to go to, to Tigray to take part in this war. And this war has surfaced, surpassed the term rule of law. Let's not kid ourselves. There is no rule of law when this amount of massive cultural dis, you know, destruction, infrastructure, economic destruction, not only the weaponized rep that the women are facing. There is no rule of law that you are enforcing by raping women. There is no rule of law you are enforcing by mass execution. We have seen the videos. Let's not, let's not kid ourselves in this war, you know, war of words of, of a game. If we do not address it by what it is, that means we're not ready to deal with it. The first thing in addressing this problem is to recognize that this is no longer a rule of law, an operation rule of law. It is a war and it's a civil war. You know, one of the early stories that came, um, one of the luckiest journalists that were, that didn't cross it to, to, to the war zone, but was in, in, in Amhara State. One of the story that came the first two weeks, I guess, was a, a story of a father who was going there to participate in this war, knowing that his son is part of the Tigran militia. He, the father, became a part of the Amhara militia or a special force, I don't recall it, recall it correctly, but he is apart from the Amhara side and he's going to participate in this war and his son is on the other side. If you don't call this a civil war, I don't know what. I don't know what. And if we are not courageous enough to address it by what it is, that means we're not ready to deal with it. We're not ready to deal with the aftermath of it. We're not ready to reconcile ourselves, to pull ourselves up from this tragedy and move on as a country. We need to find a way to deal with it. You know, whatever our political differences are, we have to come out of this. The first thing to do is to recognize this for what it is. It's not a rule of law anymore. It is a war and a destructive one as such. Thank you, Sadale, for this very impassioned, um, you know, um, conceptualization. Yes, Avet, um, yeah. This, 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 this war um, is also a war over controlling the narrative. Uh, controlling the information. So what the government did was completely uh, um, uh, block out, uh, fight this war in darkness in the high, under the high noon sun. Um, and it, that was an effort to control the information and subsequently the narrative. And so they called it to begin with as law enforcement operation because it was framed in such a way that yes, the TPLF on the night of November 3, November 4, attacked the Northern Command in a preemptive strike. Um, and the, 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 the federal government appeared like it's responding to something when in fact it, it, its planning was preempt, were preempted. Um, and now, if you call it a war, there are several things that come with it. 
um, how war is defined, how war is resolved, what uh, uh, domestic and, and regional or international mechanisms can be devised. Um, I would not call you uh, something that can make you a partner to talk to across the table if I want to get rid of you. So that was the logic underpinning this law enforcement discourse. But if, even if we look at low intensity conflicts vis-a-vis -vis wars, the scale of fighting, the number of dead, this is not even low intensity conflict. Um, the, when, you, when you look at it from the security sector point of view or uh, state security mechanisms, when you deploy police forces and in rare instances, some sectors of your armed forces to restore law and order in some places, then it can be framed as domestic situation of law and order operation. But you here have all sectors of your armed forces deployed against one um, enemy who happens to be your own national, your own country. Um, and then there is a neighboring country, Eritrea, that is brought in in full force. There are credible reports that Somalia has also been brought in, although the, in, the, 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 the way it was brought in, the numbers of troops involved um, is contested. And then there was the uh, uh, reported involvement of U, uh, United Arab Emirates drones out of Eritrea. How on earth can you characterize this as law enforcement operation? And so when you call it a war um, and, and you look at it in a broader context and Ethiopia is a giant of the region, whatever criticism we may have against the TPLF led government, EPRDF led government, Ethiopia's relative stability, and I underline the word relative here, relative stability did help a great deal to stabilize an otherwise turbulent region. And Ethiopia was an important contributor, uh, troop contributing country to international peacekeeping operations. Now, if a war breaks out in such a vital country in an otherwise fragile region of global significance, that war automatically becomes consequential to global peace and security. That then brings the charter uh, of the United Nations, chapter seven of the United Nations charter, that this conflict is a threat to international peace and security. And that makes it incumbent on the international community to get involved. Unfortunately, we have not seen that happening. Um, um, thank you. Um... Ahmed and Sedale for clarifying that question. Um, there's a number of comments that have been made by people saying that, you know, why aren't you coming out and speaking about the conflict, ethnic cleansing of Amhara people in Ethiopia or the Horn of Africa, or um, about what is happening to the Oromo in uh, Amhara people in the Oromo region um, in terms of selective outrage. Um, what I'd like to say at the beginning is that I wanted to um, focus on the war in Tigray and use it as a stepping stone for discussing about the larger Horn of Africa. I, I am not an expert on Ethiopia, but coming from um, state-sponsored violence and ethnic cleansings that keep on happening in India, one 
group against the other. Um, I just want to say this isn't about emphasizing um, the human rights violation and genocide against the Tigray alone to the expense of the other. Um, I'm happy to do more conversations, but if any one of you wants to wade in, um, I would um, have you discuss. There is a very good comment that came in um, from uh, uh, PCAC Local 901, um, which said, we are following the consequences of the civil war. I'm, and I'm gonna park this question for later, but I want to mark it. Um, you know, for people, we've been following the consequences of the civil war for the people who've been displaced and subjected to different forms of violence. What do the speakers think we should be doing to extend our solidarity to the people in Tigray and to those who are trying to raise their voices against war, both in Ethiopia and Eritrea? That is something I want to hold on for later on. But I'll go back to earlier questions um, about, um, you know, why are we hearing different narratives about um, what's happening in Ethiopia? In some senses, uh, um, I, I, I feel I can give an answer to that given my own history of involvement in media in India. It depends whether we are speaking from the perspective of the ruling party or the ruling regime, or whether we want to highlight the concerns of another group. Um, so, uh, and that's my two cents without knowing much about Ethiopia. Um, Sedale, and um, would you like to comment about this? Because quite often then the question is brought in, this isn't verifiable or that person is biased. Yeah, that's, uh, that's the nature of it, isn't it? When, uh, when your relationship as a society is mediated by state-sponsored violence, this is the very natural outcome of it. Um, even if you are screaming about other atrocities, people want to hear what they want to hear. And they would thoroughly, you know, uh, put that you are talking about this one, you're not talking about that one. This happens when, as I said, our relationship, our horizontal relationship as a society, including family relationship, by the way, relationship with our closest friends, is mediated by state-sponsored violence. And there's no trust whatsoever. Whatever we say works against you, works for that one. So there is no you know, gray zone in that. So I'm very much used to that. Um, when Ethiopians were protesting against the TPLF dominated government that collapsed with the coming of the prime minister as a media and as, a, as an individual, I was with the people who were on the street. And at that time, I was an Oromo extremist, um, a radical, you know, somebody because the Oromo were protesting. And, and my magazine was a pro Oromo, whatever. That, that now, because I'm very much outspoken about what's happening in Tigray, I am a TPLF sympathizer, right? I'm very much used to that. Narratives change because state violence moderates the relationship we have as a society. And one of the very typical thing that was very dominant in, in Abiy Ahmed's Ethiopia, after he came to power, was that as he went on dismantling this uh, efficient but very repressive uh, security system that was uh, sustaining the power of the TPLF's dominated party in power, as he went on unraveling that, 
what happened was not a quick move in filling the collapsed security and intelligence sector in the country with another efficient and democratic system. That didn't happen. Uh, what happened is the collapse of the system and the privatization of monopoly environments. It took place after, after this reformer prime minister came to power, the number of horizontal violence we witnessed in Ethiopia was unseen in the history of that country. It began from the Gedio community that displaced, you know, the Romo versus the, the Gedio armed groups. Let's not conflate the community with the community. It's not a violence of the communities. It is a violence of armed group inflicting pain on the civilians that displaced about 1.5 million people. That was barely three, four months after Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed. We were reporting on that one. And it didn't stop there. The Amhara community today, because of the you know, settlement pattern, history, and all these things are everywhere in the country. They make up a good part of Ethiopia. What Ethiopia we know today is nothing without the Amhara in it, the narrative, everything the cultural, the religious, every narrative is constituent of the Ethiopian state and the image as we know it. And they are everywhere. They happen to be also the first targets of this decentralized and privatized monopoly on violence. Today, you would find in Oromia, in, um, particularly in Oromia regional state, in several places, Amhara's being targeted by armored groups, by vigilante groups. Um, and, and likewise, in, in Ben Shangul, you see the Amhara versus also the, the, the uh, indigenous communities there that we call the Gumus, being equally victimized of this uh, uh, decentralized and privatized monopoly on violence. The state is not providing the security, the safety and security that citizens need in that country in the advent of Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed. And that is a result of the collapse of that repressive but efficient security system that was overseen by the TPLF's dominated EPRDF. You know, undoing an author a centralized authoritarian system is never an easy process. But the failure with the Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed comes also that he never sought for a political settlement. So every sneeze at the political level up there ends up being a military violence down there. And civilians are the ones that are bearing the brunt of this. So what we see today in Ethiopia is that decentralized violence uh, in the hands of privatized monopoly on violence, individuals uh, calling the shots, displacing hundreds and thousands of people overnight you know, in a in, with a snap of your finger, you would see hundreds dead. You would see thousands displaced. Amharas are being victimized. So are the Oromos. So if we want to talk about that, we can talk about in the general framework that it is the Ethiopia we live today that has seen the collapse of an efficient but repressive security system, replaced it with privatized monopoly on violence, monopoly in the hands of individuals. The proliferation of weapons that we see even being reported by the state media as being transported left and right is staggering. It's staggering, it indicates towards the government's inability to control monopoly on violence because this is the number one responsibility that should be in the hands of the government. 
So violence is what is mediating our relationship today. Both state-sponsored and vigilante groups privatized monopoly on violence-sponsored relationship. The Ethiopian people are dealing with the aftermath of that today. And it is the same everywhere. Civil war is happening in Oromia as well between the Oromo Liberation Army, which broke away from an, an opposition group, Oromo Liberation Front, and became, you know, they don't want to lay their arms down. I have written about that. Also how important it is that they are disarmed, reintegrated uh, uh, into a camp and given training on that one. It's not happening because the failure is of a political failure. So that civil war is happening. In fact, it has been intensifying the last five months after the war broke out in Tigray because it has left the country vulnerable, the security vacuum, as Professor Awood said before. This was, this was a fear that I expressed the first week of the war. My fear was that the army is going to be deployed in Tigray and that's gonna leave security vacuum in the country. And it's happening today. So this civil war in Oromia is also raging as we speak between the government and the Oromo Liberation Army. At the heart of this is a political failure, failure to reach at a political settlement. There is nothing, we cannot scrap the sky and find anything else. You can do that, but you cannot find anything else other than that failure of having a political settlement in the country, which has led us, you know, uh, violence to become our everyday experience. Mm -hmm. um, thank you, Sadali. Um, as a student of history, um, I know that the past informs the present and the present informs the future. So I'm very aware of that. Um, I, I'm also saddened by how you sum up um, how the political failure is, is um, laid at the doorsteps of the failure of the state and also the increase in vigilantism and the privatized violence that is now um, privatized monopoly of violence, which you're saying is happening vis-a-vis -vis different groups fighting with each other. And so um, <clears throat> I had a question for Awet, which I know it's 2.15. Um, and, and it's something about like, what do we anticipate for this region in terms of conflict and peace? And somewhere can you um, weave in this question um, that was asked by PCAC um, 901 saying, what can we do to extend our solidarity to the people in Tigray and those who are trying to raise their voices um, about what's happening in Ethiopia, Eritrea and the Horn of Africa, right? So um, Avet about that and Sidale, and that should be roughly around like the time when we sign off then just be brief um, sorry to be rude but yeah well brevity is not my forte and so I am not offended if you stop me um, so um, let me let me add to what Adale powerfully uh, pointed out just a moment ago there is the the highly divided narrative about a very tragic thing that is going on in Tigray now. Because if you isolate it and ask these individuals or these groups whether they condone that type of violence, no good human being can say they would condone it. But once it's placed in a, in a, in a political economy fraught with violence, not just present, but also past. Uh, it brings out the deeply rooted uh, division and the contested 
narratives historically. And that's what I say in my other works that Ethiopia, like all other states for that matter, was founded on violence and is held together by violence. That is the importance of the point that Tadale was making that the, the interaction between communities is mediated by state violence. And that has been at the root of this regional giant. So that is one. And many people now, when you raise your voices, I like Tadale was a very harsh critic of the TPLF for two decades. And I celebrated the change when the change happened. But I celebrated the change because I hoped that that would usher respect of human rights, dignity of individual Ethiopian citizens, peace that Ethiopia would secure for itself and then would influence positively the region, not the other way around. But now that things have turned around and I'm a critic of the egregious violations that are happening in Tigray, I suddenly became a TPLF sympathizer, which is a reflection, or I am characterized as TPLF sympathizer, which is a reflection of the division that we are talking about. And people would tell you, where were you when this atrocity was happening against the Amhara in the early 90s, or against the Gambella in the early 2000s, or against the Oromo, or against the Somalis? Well. Maybe I wasn't there. Maybe I didn't know it. Maybe I said something then. But what if I didn't say anything then? Does that mean I have no voice now? I have no role to play now? So when, when we walk this scholarship, journalism, and I don't want to call it activism because I don't think Fedali and I are activists, but this is our responsibility as human beings to be each other's keepers, to speak out on behalf of those who are not able to. And so I condemn the violence and on the record, I did condemn the violence that the state was meting out against uh, uh, Ethiopian civilian citizens. The identity-based violence, whether it's in the border area of Oromia and Southern peoples and nations and nationalities region, the Guji uh, conflict, or the targeting of Amhara communities in Oromia and Benishangul Gumuz, or the targeting of Oromo ethnic groups in the Amhara regional state, and, and the dispute between the Afar and Somali regions that killed many uh, civilians and displaced many, I'm going to interrupt you, um, Avet. You'll have to be short. It's 2.20. Um, and um, so, yeah, can you tell us about what do you anticipate for the region in the future? Um, and then I'll have Sidale comment, and then I just want to wrap it up there. Um, Carolyn, I think 2.20 is the time normally when it's ended. Pardon me, right? So, yeah, um, maybe I'll um, end. Yeah. Okay, yeah, thank you for cutting me off because I could have gone all day. Um, the region, well, right now the region is um, on what appears like a bottomless abyss. Eritrea is deeper and deeper in dictatorship and enforced famine under the guise of COVID uh, restrictions. 
Ethiopia is ever more fragile, not only because of the conflict in Tigray, but also of the smaller intensity conflicts popping right and left, and the utter failure of leadership at the center. And then there is the Ethiopia, Egypt, Sudan problem along the Nile waters, which is creating a whole new dimension to, uh, to, to this conflict in Ethiopia. This is a historic conflict over the Nile waters uh, use. And then there is Somalia, which um, uh, with a president who is refusing to step down after his term had ended in February and Somalia, which was kind of emerging or showing signs of emerging out of two decades plus conflict is now back in the mire. So the region is not really looking good. In the midst of this, COVID is rampant in the region and the region suffered repeated uh, uh, locust swarm uh, invasions. And this is on top of the fact that this is one of the environmentally vulnerable, socioeconomically poor uh, uh, societies. And so the international community, a lot more is expected from the international community, but unfortunately, uh, self-interest seems to be dictating what international actors can do. And so an, a, a proper uh, uh, analysis and an appropriate um, measure need to be taken by the United Nations Security Council to help rein in these conflicts and protect civilians wherever they may be. And there are ample mechanisms and experiences to protect civilians in conflict situations and find uh, off-ramp from this road, road to further abyss. I Thank think I should you. stop here because again, I could talk all day on this. No, I'm sorry. Um, so Dale, I was gonna ask you another question, but um, normally the session ends at 2.20 and we have three minutes over. Um, my deep apologies to the two of you and to people who have posed some questions. Um, once again, I would like to thank um, SNED, um, Carolyn Aicha Dairon for um, taking up my offer um, to host this panel. I have learned so much selfishly and thank you um Sedale Lema for taking time out of your very busy schedule as you're reporting and Professor Avet Michael again for coming on and explaining things not in brief um, but hopefully there might be more opportunities in the future um, once again I really appreciate that and I do hope um, that we can have this conversation occur in a more meaningful and like a non-angry way later on. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for Thank having, you for having us. us. I enjoyed it too. <laughs> Thank you.